0: scary movies.
1: Uh Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. you making
0: popcorn? Uh-huh. What's what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk, Talk to me. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is the foremost Richard Kelly expert I know. Siobhan Irving is here. Welcome, Siobhan.
1: Hello, George. Thank you for having me on... You talk about film. Hell yeah. I love to talk about film.
0: Folks, that's what it's all about. That's what we're here to do, is talk film. about film. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror? If it's something that you're generally into, if it's more of a once in a while kind of thing.
1: No, I, I'm very, very into horror. Uh, as a kid, I've been generally attracted to it my whole life. I never really was too scared to watch horror movies. I always, I found them, like... Not that I'm not saying that I'm uh, too cool to be scared by horror movies. (laughs) It's not true. Uh, But like I I always found them like fascinating and alluring and something drew me to them. And like I'm into film as a whole and like art as uh, as like a concept. Like I'm really into art and like dissecting art and stuff. But there's something about horror specifically that I really am drawn to. I'd say the last three months I've watched 90 90% 90% of the things I've watched have been horror movies. I've just been in a like weird mood where that's like the only thing that's interesting me right now.
0: <laughs>
1: and who could blame you? And who could blame me? And it's been great. Like I don't, I don't, I don't miss other movies right now. I'm not, I'm not crying <laughs> that I'm not watching uh, some biopic about, you know, some shitty musician or a shitty biopic about a good musician.
0: Do you have a favorite subgenre? Ooh, yes, I do. All right, let's hear it. Found footage mm that's right, yeah, you you mentioned that you're a big fan of that.
1: Yeah, I think there's something about found footage that lets you immerse that, that makes it more easy to immerse yourself in it because I mean you literally are it's it's basically it's from your perspective if you think about it right. It's getting you as into it as absolutely possible. The last one I watched was <laughs> a
0: Dashcam. Oh, yes, from the host director, right?
1: Yes. And starring a uh, horrible person who is extremely funny in the movie. <laughs> and then I guess before that, I watched The Sacrament, which I'd seen before. And all oh, the unfriended movies. I mean, those are those are found footage. Yeah, I, I have been having, I, I've been specifically seeking out as much found footage as I can in the last few months of my horror watching. So I think it's something I kind of came to recently, came to realize recently. Uh, like probably a few months ago, I probably wouldn't have had an answer for you, but Now that I've started diving a little deeper into found footage as a whole, and maybe watching a little bit of more off the beaten path stuff, like Mm -hmm. there's there's just so much endless stuff you can do with that concept. From like uh, a very eerie but simple um, Blair Blair Witch, obviously the 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 god of the genre. There's no disputing that. Yeah, and then there's also like really freaky shit that can like make you feel like you're going insane like uh with camera trickery um like the new Blair Witch which I also think is excellent um or maybe uh as above so Below or something like
0: that yeah it is cool literalizes the camera eye yeah. as your own it's cool stuff oh at the, the outwaters have you seen the outwaters Oh, I've been hearing really good stuff about it. I haven't gotten to it yet myself, but uh, um, oh boy, it's on the list. It's fucked up. It's
1: fucking. It's a fucking bizarre movie. I, I
0: loved it. Now you have your own show, have a nice pod Calypse, wherein you discuss primarily Southland Tales, mm-hmm. a film by Richard Kelly. Though you have covered today's movie as well, his breakout hit, the freshman classic Donnie Darko, aka Donkey Darkness. If you're nasty, <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if you remember sort of your first exposure to this movie.
1: Not exactly, but I do remember it was uh middle ish time. And I think it's possible I saw the director's cut first cuz it's probably just something like I I either saw it on TV or I had the the DVD. And I know it's something that like I already used the word alluring, but like that's the word for this this movie is like it's mysterious, it's alluring, it's something that draws you in. I have a theory about this movie that my co-host shares that it's, like, co host on Have a Nice Pod Clips. Uh, Marcello Pico, Marcelo J. Pico. Uh, at Marcello J. Pico on Twitter and Blue Sky. Uh, I just want to get him out there. Uh, email him at talkfilmsociety at gmail.com. Go to his website, talkfilmsociety.com. Listen to his other podcasts. I love my co-host. But, yeah, so I, I think this movie is very... I think this movie is, like, a benchmark movie for getting... for, like, budding film nerds. I, I think, oh, like, other movies I can think of like this or uh, like, Drive, where, like, every generation has a handful of these types of movies that will, like, spark your interest in film. And I think Donnie Darko kind of is that movie for a lot of people. Like, I know that story from a lot of people, and it's sort of true for me, too, because I... Well, the Drive's more accurate, but uh, Donnie Darko, uh, it's a mystery that is solvable in a way it's very approachable even though it, it has its bizarreness its weirdness so like it feels kind of outsiderish but it is approachable and like it's something that like i think can yeah get you started on your like film journey and like move on to other stuff that is maybe more complex and i'm not saying i'm not saying this movie is not complex or 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 that that's a bad thing like it it is kind of being solvable i don't think is a bad thing necessarily i'm not i'm not saying anything bad about it If any of that makes sense was that an answer to your question even
0: it was it was and i think it did make sense (laughs) i remember this coming out i think the second time the re-release probably would have been when i was more aware of it and being like oh wow that rabbit mask is really scary but not really engaging with it beyond that Mm -hmm. but you know you'd see it on stuff in like hot topic and it did kind of develop at least in my exposure to it a reputation as a bit of a punchline, uh, the most annoying person you know's favorite movie kind of sure. thing. Yeah. Yeah. But then when I finally watched it, I was like, oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. If I'd seen it as a teenager, I would have fallen in love with it myself. And maybe that's because I'm the most annoying person a lot of people know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but damn it, the movie is good. That, that's all film nerds. <laughs> we are the, we're that's the right.
1: annoying weirdos. <laughs>
0: It also it puts a very handsome face on disaffected alienation for mm. teens to relate to and go, wow, even yes. the handsomes are fucked up.
1: Absolutely. Perfect, perfect, perfect thing to say.
0: I think that this connects to a quote from Drew Barrymore, who says in one of the litany of commentaries that I watched, <laughs> yeah. she said, kids are offered a lot of escapism, but not a lot to relate to. And I thought that that was a really interesting comment, especially from someone who had as troubled a childhood as she did to talk about like how things are not always great. And it's not all like crazy parties and like project X kind of movies. Mm -hmm. I think that having a troubled teenager as the hero is a rare thing that people do latch onto when they're at that age.
1: It gives the teenage experience of angst, anxiety, anxiety, feeling like an outsider, it literalizes that as a metaphor for the end of the world. It, 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 it makes you as a teenager feeling these feelings make you feel totally validated in a way that I think is really special.
0: Yeah, and I find it kind of interesting that it has garnered this reputation of pretension because it's not really something that Richard himself seeks out. His three most inspirational directors that he talked about are populist icons Spielberg, Zemeckis, and Cameron. Mm -hmm. One of his shorts is called The Vomiteer, about a guy who can't stop puking. (laughs) And Donnie Darko itself, I think, is very funny with a warmth that I wouldn't necessarily call cool, And he said, I think self-importance is a problem for a lot of film students. To solve the world's problems or the desire to make people weep. Comedy is so undervalued and looked down upon, but it's so needed. If you can tell a simple comedic story, you can do anything. Mm -hmm. I agree. Now, that quote came from the Donnie Darko book, which he assembled as a sort of companion piece. Uh, It was pretty interesting. Uh, Therein, he also describes a normal upbringing and relevant to the movie says... I'm glad I didn't go to private school because it creates an elitist worldview, but nothing prepares you for the evil of the world like high school. And I find this kind of interesting because not only do you have the interpersonal conflict of just a bunch of hormonal teenagers being jammed together, but you are also exposed to a lot of societal ills there. The lack of focus on education, funding-wise, the cutting of social programs, rising violence, teachers being threatened by parents and burned out even somebody who does have encouraging parents and, and quote unquote, the most normal possible childhood can still recognizes that in public education and like sees that there is like a dire need for uh change. And this was in like 2001. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: right. it, it feels cliche to say or whatever, but I feel like Richard Kelly is like so ahead of his time in so many ways in like, in like, the way that he discusses themes through Donnie Darko it feels of its time filmmaking wise maybe but like uh, the themes of the movie do not feel like things that were super explored in a film like this Mm -hmm. and then like Southland Tales obviously I I don't need to spend I've spent hundreds of hours talking about that movie Mm -hmm. but like that is like Only more and more and more and more becoming obviously like prescient and like stuff that like he was clearly reading into politics and stuff in a way that was like uh clever and smart, (laughs) yeah. Like we all should have been in 2006, but we were not, and now we're here and getting rapidly worse. But uh, I, yeah, he's a very forward thinking filmmaker, I think. He has very kind of like socialist views, I think, but like not. But it, he doesn't feel like that kind of guy. He's, he's, he's a weird guy. Uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> it is kind of a weird situation. He said that the jet engine was the starting point. Mm. He knew that it would come off his mother's plane in a different dimension. And then he just tried to find the most entertaining way of getting that engine to fall. And in this, uh, this sort of relates to the director's cut commentary between Richard Kelly and Kevin Smith. Who I guess helped like push for that to happen. He saw the movie and liked it.
1: That is one of the reasons I saw I I became obsessed with this movie is because I was a total Kevin Smith nerd as a kid. Mm -hmm. Me picking up Donnie Darko, reading the back of it. You know what? No, I went to moviecommentary.com, I think was a website that may or may not still exist, where it like cataloged all movie commentaries. And I just looked up like Kevin Smith and I saw that he did. A commentary for Roadhouse with uh, Scott Mosier, his producer and co-host on Smodcast. And then he did a commentary with Richard Kelly on Donnie Darko. So I went out and found that Blu-ray right away and uh, and the DVD of Roadhouse and listened to those. And, like, really fell in love with Donnie Darko after that. Roadhouse, I can take her leave. It's a fun movie.
0: <laughs> Here's the thing. I... Uh... I have no beef with Kevin Smith. In fact, I'll even go to the map for some of the later stuff that a lot of people like stopped liking him at this point. Like Tusk. I'm into Tusk. Yeah, right, Good movie. Yeah, thank you. But I thought that the energy on the commentary was a little weird. I it's don't know. It's fucking
1: weird, right? <laughs> he, he, he takes over conversations. The dude is like, it's about me, right? And also mm-hmm. in the first 30 seconds, am I wrong? In the first – I haven't listened to this in a while – in the first like minute of the commentary, doesn't he like make a reference to him like wanting to have sex with like some of the teenage kids in the movie or like jacking <laughs> off or something like? It was,
0: he he says something about like, oh yeah, did you get to fuck Jenna Malone or <laughs> something like that? And God, what a freak! <laughs> and Richards like, uh, we're very good friends. And she's also like sixteen in this movie. <laughs> that, that's like, a- okay, Kevin. <laughs>
1: that's kind of opposed to the the other commentary which is also one this movie has two of the most bizarre commentaries i've ever listened to where the other one has like every actor who is in this fucking movie uh (laughs) drew barrymore uh holmes osborne every single actor that's in the movie basically jake gyllenhaal i think oh no there's a he has his
0: own yeah he has his own private
1: yeah um but but yeah like we're Uh, Richard Kelly and like eight actors who love to talk. Somehow Richard (laughs) is able to keep hold of that situation and and wrangle these people all in, even when they go off on crazy tangents and still try to talk about the movie and bring people back to the movie. And he does that with Kevin Smith, amazingly, even though Kevin Smith still has to be totally embarrassing. Like he was in 2000, I don't know, four when this uh, director's cut came out which is right. what that commentary was for. I mean, I mean, I think Kevin Smith has become both more and less annoying as time has gone on, <laughs> just more annoying <laughs> in different ways. He's, he's cut yeah. down on that level of cringiness, but he's become cringy in totally different ways.
0: Uh, but anyway, well, yeah. well, he he definitely still at least has some insight into the filmmaking process oh, that I, I yeah, thought I was it was like, pretty good here. One thing that they discussed was the idea of swinging for the fences with a first movie. Because despite the complication of time travel being a turnoff for a lot of producers, there is sort of this idea of a reasonable unreasonableness to make a movie when you're young. And they sort of let you get away with things that you might not be able to fit into a movie that you're working with a studio on Mm -hmm. because it's your first movie. So he he writes this complex, sardonic take on a superhero movie with time travel. So yeah, that's strike he keeps one. He
1: talking about comic <laughs> book heroes, even though he doesn't <laughs> read comic books during that commentary.
0: <laughs> and then he it's insists just- that he has to direct as well. That's strike two for most Amazing. places. Yeah. yeah. And as we know, strike two, you're out. <laughs> that's <laughs> famously how it works. And so that means despite being a big hit as a concept and a writing sample, it is declared dead. It will never get made, they say. Never get made, that is, until a big name star attaches to it out of nowhere. That's right. Everyone's favorite Donnie Darko, Jason Schwartzman.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Just kidding. Obviously, Jason Schwartzman is not Donnie Darko, but he did want to do it, and he's hot off Rushmore. So people are paying attention to what he's doing next, including Drew Barrymore and her producing partner at Flower Films, Nancy Javonin. She gets the script. She loves it. As you say, she basically demands to be in the movie. <laughs> she bribes her way in. She comes on board as English teacher Karen Pomeroy. And this lends credence to the movie even more than Jason did. You know, he's a hot up and comer, but she's established already at this point. So she helps him bring in both some great actors and raise double the budget they thought, landing at four and a half million total.
1: Uh, God bless you, Drew.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, Needed uh, every penny. We'll, uh,
1: I'll forgive you for the strike stuff. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> this makes up for it. Okay, that, that's your
0: one. That's your yeah. One there's page. a trade right now. Now yeah. the slate is clean. She is not in the plus or negative <laughs> column. <laughs> at some point, though, Jason backs out. Kelly said they never really got an answer why. Drew said she was in it for Richard at this point and she was going to help him find a new Donnie.
1: So what I what I had heard was that Drew Barrymore, while she demanded, she demanded to be in it and but she was only open for certain dates because she was also shooting like Charlie's Angel Full Throttle I think. So yeah. <clears throat> like Jason Schwartzman happened to not be available for those specific days that Drew Barrymore mm. could be available. So it was like that a scheduling sense. thing that that got Jason Schwartzman out of this, but you, you might be right that it was just a random thing that dropped him out.
0: The auditions began. There's talk of kid from Sling Blade or Almost Famous being cast, but Jake walked in. They said they knew within three words that he was Donnie. There was also a funny moment in the commentary where Richard and Jake are talking about Jake freaking him out by revealing on set that he'd been imitating him to get the character. Yes. 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 <laughs> it's like oh, That's not what you want to hear. <laughs> So once they get Jake, they say, hey, let's get Maggie too as the elder sister. Why manufacture that chemistry? And they're right.
1: And they're right. The the family dynamic in this movie is honestly maybe my favorite thing about it. Yeah, it's really great. They feel like a family. I mean, they they feel like siblings. They are siblings. Uh, They feel like the mother and father, Holmes Osborne and uh,
0: Mary McDonald.
1: Mary McDonald. Yes, of course. How could I forget? Mary McDonald and Holmes Osborne are like Just perfection as the parents and they have such a cute little relationship like there's so much like natural chemistry there it feels like they feel like they feel like parents of
0: teenage kids to me they really feel like a modern day version of the parents in poltergeist where like they feel like they still consider themselves to be young and like hip and, and like, you see them joking around and stuff and having fun with each other when the kids aren't around.
1: Yeah, you're, you're not bitch. You're bitching, but you're not a bitch. Yeah. Uh, that he says to her. <laughs> That's so cute. It's so cute.
0: You've also got <laughs> Alex Greenwald, lead singer of Phantom Planet, and America's sweetheart Seth Rogen as the Bullies, mm-hmm. which is, you know, kind of shocking to come back and see. Even in Freaks and Geeks at the time, he was just, like, a pleasant stoner. That was his thing from the beginning.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is, that's his this is his film debut too, right, Rogan?
0: I believe so, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he he had just been in Freaks and Geeks up to this point. Wow. Then we've got Jenna Malone as Gretchen. Not only a great performance, but also the character name brings an interesting connection to Faust. In Gotha's version, Gretchen's love saves Faust from beyond the grave, complicates the morality of the play as far as the inciting hubris. That version asks... Does Faust deserve punishment from a just god, or is his search for knowledge heroic because he's trying to bring back his beloved? There's also another connection to the culmination of the stories on Witch's Night for Faust and Halloween for Donnie. So there's some cool Faustian influences kind of woven into this in a way that I think is is nice. You're over my head here, but I love it. (laughs) You've also got first-time editor Sam Bauer, who does a great job on a pretty challenging movie unsurprising when you learn that they met after Sam rescued Kelly's film, visceral matter, not, you know, it's hard to edit together, not only. So it looks cool and feels surreal, but also just to have, it make sense, especially when, as we'll discuss, they wind up having to chop out huge portions of the movie. Yes. So they have all this untested talent, and that means that it's important to have a few experienced hands to keep things on track as well, which comes mainly in the form of April Ferry, costume designer and Steven poster cinematographer, Steven really helps to keep things on track for their tight budget and 28-day schedule, but also to make sure that they could actually shoot it how they wanted. The line producers were reluctant to allow this new director to shoot with anamorphic lenses, but because Steven had a good relationship with Panavision, he got a hold of some technologically advanced film stock, he said he'd be able to light from the now-unseen ceilings, and so they acquiesced. And he also did a really great job with the fluid motion of the cameras, which, you know, sort of embody the watery spears of time travel that bring us along the path of the movie i think that the camera is the movie in a lot of ways as well
1: yeah he steven poster is such an underrated cinematographer he really should be talked about more um he is kelly's cinematographer he's worked with him on all three of his movies and uh all three of those movies look very visually distinct and like feel miraculous in the way that they're shot the guy really should be talked about more
0: April Ferry did a great job too. She helped them make oh. the most of their budget, which wasn't high. And you know, you think about, for example, yes, it's cost efficient to put them in uniforms, but also adds like a layer of conformity for Donnie mm-hmm. to bristle against way in it's, it's things that are form and function.
1: Exactly. And then, I mean, not to mention the, the grand prize, uh, the, 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 the star attraction. Oh yes. The bunny suit, <laughs> our Frank, the bunny, uh, Incredible, like, iconic, uh, and I think for a reason. I, I, I do believe it's an amazing costume, and it's like it's. I think it's amazing because like it does look like a Halloween costume that some kid bought, but it looks still otherworldly and mysterious at the same time. Like you can buy it as both, which I think is the the absolute brilliance of it. Like it's pro- it's probably come about by limitations of budget but they made it work so, so well. And that's also the way with its shot, like the movie theater scene really just, oh my God, makes it
0: so ethereal and weird. Definitely. With the mask itself, you know, April did an amazing job on the costume part. The mask itself, when you hear that it uh, was sculpted by one of the designers who works with Stan Winston, one of the all-time great special effects artists, you're like, oh, this makes perfect sense that this fucked up creature mask is coming from uh, that line of heritage Mm -hmm. and so they film the movie they're feeling really good about it they get into Sundance with a ton of buzz the kind of buzz that can be impossible to live up to and the screening was described on a commentary by Kelly as quote disastrous um (laughs) there were some who connected with it but mostly people weren't comfortable with a teenager shooting a gun especially after columbine or they wanted to cut 30 minutes or they wanted to make frank stabby frank uh, and so they really couldn't get a buyer to bite
1: the idea of frank as as just like a slasher character is like awful so gross to me i hate it (laughs) and like he is kind of that in the culture a little bit it seems like i think i think people think he is that he's a scary bunny killer you know Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's not that's not what the character is
0: not at all it almost went right to video it almost went to the stars network but kelly was like just put it in one theater and i'll be happy Mm -hmm. and someone at new market saw the gem inside they helped them cut about nine minutes from the sundance cut then set a screening to try and sell it to his bosses, inviting a little somebody named Chris Nolan as well. Mm. Perfect plant.
1: Uh, Richard Kelly and uh, Christopher Nolan were at the same Sundance with Memento and Donnie Darko, and both of them got, like, uh, really shitty reactions to it, and were, like, having trouble selling it.
0: Yeah, he said his only change would be tweaking the title cards, and so New Market agreed to buy the movie for a small run, Fifty-ish theaters around Halloween weekend. They wanted to emphasize the spookiness of the mask and the promo material. So I, I'm, you know, Probably studios not not doing their their uh, their least to dissuade people that he's not a, <laughs> a I killer.
1: I know, I know. Like that is the marketing <laughs> of the movie. Yeah. There's a French video store that had. This is so off topic, but it it relates. There's a French video store that has a YouTube channel that does walkthroughs with celebrities it's essentially like the Criterion Closet videos where they pick up movies in the video store and talk about them a little bit and they have like famous filmmakers and actors like that you wouldn't believe like Michael Bay they have to do this but Richard Kelly did it once and he picked up the European copy of Donnie Darko and he just talked about how much he hates that poster and cover of that movie the European <laughs> one specifically because it is so like I know what you did last summer. Like it totally represents the movie as if it is just a slasher.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's not great, but on top of that, nine 11 happens. And now they have this movie about a jet engine falling on people while the movie is going public is stressed out. They're not really looking about, or they're not really looking for this moody piece about an unstable teenager relapsing into arson, becoming a murderer (laughs) and then sacrificing himself.
1: (laughs) While a plane crashes.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so incredible. Incredible what so happens to him. the movie gets an average of $1,100 per theater <laughs> across these U.S. theaters, made about half a million dollars domestic. There was a really funny quote in the making of documentary where Richard says, more people worked on the movie than saw it in theaters. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> But then it actually did turn a profit worldwide, thanks, uh, thanks to it exploding a year or so later in the UK. There were these cool graffiti campaigns, an art exhibit that had photos in the book, actually. It was kind of neat to see. Uh, there was an amusing one of a Smurf orgy. But this popularity then trickled back to the US and led to a re-release of the director's cut in 2004, as we mentioned. And this popularity in the U.S. was driven primarily through the DVD market and people discovering the website. Um, We definitely have to talk about this website. Donnie Darko, much like the Blair Witch Project, actually exists not on film and not on the Internet, but in a third space that we build that interacts with both. It blends the high narrative, low interactivity of movies with the inverse of the website, high interactivity, low narrative. And get ready for some film talk that I'm about to do, actually, because there's this filmic concept of the chuzette versus the fabula. And the chuzette is the way that we see time arranged on screen, which basically you can boil that down to the plot. This presents the fabula, or the chronological order in which things happen. And so this is kind of a paradoxical relationship where you can only see the fabula through the plot's interpretive vision. But the fabula is a reconstruction of what happened in the plot. And so this is sort of negotiated by narrative existing as both story and discourse. It is informing itself as you watch it. The things that you've seen make you sort of comprehend the things that you're seeing later on screen, and it can go backwards and forwards in time, basically. On the internet, however, there's no control over the temporality with which the viewers engage the work. You can dwell on a page that means very little to most people, but means a lot to them for hours, or you could navigate a linear story in a non-linear fashion, jumping around from page to page. So when both of these things are telling the same story, two interpretations of the same chronology replete with both complementary and contradictory info, it creates this intertextual truth that we have to hold both timelines in our mind, that of... The website and that of the movie. And the website does this by foregoing attracting new visitors in favor of adding to the fabula or the chronology. We see on the website obituaries of characters that you won't know unless you've seen the movie. You see chapters of a book that mean nothing without the context of the chuzette. And the intermediality creates a circuit between the two to fill in the narrative gaps. And so Donnie Darko exists most truly in our experience of the website and movie amalgamation. Neither of those things is Donnie Darko. Only our shared experience of both is Donnie Darko. Uh,
1: everything you just said totally made sense to me. I got it. You're so good at explaining it. Like, fuck,
0: dude. I'm I'm glad that it made I'm sense because I was really worried about it. <laughs> Interestingly, the website itself also attempts to negotiate that dichotomy between narrative and control by limiting your path through the website with passwords, individual links popping up to follow until you reach a point of stasis where they stop providing links or a way to return. So the movie kind of has to sacrifice some of the ordinary way you would interact with the website in order to control the narrative and build out that chronology. Uh, And the website ran until Flash ended in 2020. R.I.P. Flash. We hardly knew ye. I'll pour one out for Homestar Runner, too. (laughs) Now that I've bored everyone to sleep with that huge rant about the website, we can jump into the actual movie now. Before we see anything, we hear the sound of thunder. Very ominous, portentous even. But we finally pull in on Donnie Darko waking up at the top of a cliff overlooking the town of Middlesex. He kind of laughs in disbelief. Really funny moment in that very uh, chaotic commentary that you were talking about, where they're, like, introducing themselves by character name, and about four in, somebody is like, oh, I get what we're doing now. (laughs) Jake talked about having to bike up these mountain paths, like, 50 times to get these opening (laughs) shots. (laughs) He wakes up here because he's been chosen, summoned to the mountain- on the commentary, they also point out Frank in the Red Trans Am leaving from dropping off Elizabeth while Donnie bikes home to the sound of The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen. Uh, very appropriate band name and lyrics and I do think it's better than the NXS one. Sorry, I have to say it.
1: I don't know. I, I think they're both fine. I I, I, I agree uh, Killing Moon is better here. They, they, they move Killing Moon in the director's cut. They move it from this right. scene to the party scene and I think you're right, but both both are probably a little worse.
0: There is also some interesting choreography for the family, especially Samantha and his mom. Uh, Samantha is on a trampoline embodying the idea of reaction and past energy, which I thought was interesting. Uh, while Mama reads Stephen King's It about a small town hiding a grim secret mm-hmm, that yeah. preys on its children. That's probably not thematic. <laughs> This is when we meet the family over dinner, and we sort of talked about how great this family dynamic is, but this scene in particular is so amazing at doing tonal setup. You know, they talk about how important it is that we see them laughing, and even when they argue, it's this amicable family kind of fight. I think that they do a great job of capturing that, you know, that there is love for each other there, even when they are talking about as emotionally charged as politics.
1: They're, they're kind of the ideal middle class family. Are like lower yeah. middle class. Like they're they love each other, but they have their own individual personalities, and like none of them are perfect at all. Like it's 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 like a real American family that's getting by. You know.
0: They also discussed that all the dinner scenes were filmed right after each other, so the food was disgusting and cold. <laughs> <laughs> God, they would just rip off the shirt and be like, "All right, throw on this other one. Get back in the seat." <laughs> This is, of course, also the source of the excellent how-does-one-suck-a-fuck. But (laughs) I have to say, you are such a fuck-ass. That's also pretty damn great.
1: Fuck-ass is is great. I wonder if they invented this. Is this the first uh, instance on film of somebody saying, fuck-ass? Exactly like
0: that. Wow. Listeners, reach out. Do do the research and, and tell us. His mom, though, confronts Donnie about his, you know his sleepwalking and he uh Elizabeth just revealed that he's not been taking his pills. And so she confronts him, she fails to reach him, she leaves, and he hesitates a moment, then calls her a bitch behind the closed door. Really, really awesome character moment of this sort of childish lashing out and testing boundaries.
1: Yeah. Uh, And then it leads to another nice family moment. I already said it earlier, but between the mother and the father, uh, she asks him, am I a bitch? And he says, uh, you're not a bitch. You're bitching. But you're not a bitch.
0: And That's right. <laughs> it's, 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 it's wonderful. Great improvised line by Holmes there. really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, reminds me, like I said, of the Young Poltergeist family. Dad is reading the Tommyknockers. Uh, so the family that reads King together stays together. <laughs> Dad also has a sleeping disorder. Like Donnie does, which I think is interesting, especially when you compare it to a later scene in the director's cut that is sadly not in the theatrical cut. But I do enjoy where he and Donnie are talking to each other sort of outside and and he's like, oh, I used to be crazy. Like, uh, you know, they said the same stuff about me. There is an interesting patrilineal connection there that, you know, he does sort of reflect his father and the fears of what you might pass on to your children. Yeah, that's wonderful. Wonderfully put. Yeah. The clock strikes midnight, and we enter the Tangent Universe. (laughs) Not for nothing, I think it's pretty amusing that the clock face looks very sad. I've never noticed.
1: We'll have to look at that next time.
0: It's October 2nd, 1988. Donnie hears a disembodied voice summoning him, and he goes, hypnotized and sleepwalking, to the golf course. And there, as one does, he sees a six-foot-tall psychic rabbit. 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, 12 seconds. That is when the world will end. It's interesting, again, you know, that he plays a lot with these paradoxes. They come up a lot in time travel movies. There is sort of an interesting paradox character-wise for Donnie to become disoriented and aware simultaneously. He is displaced in his world, but also is now able to see the truth, as it were. Elizabeth is dropped off at home by her boyfriend, Frank, while dad is finally catching some Z's in the den and you hear Frank honking in the distance and suddenly a jet engine falls through the roof onto Donnie's bed. Really funny exchange during this chaos in the commentary where uh, Rose Darko is hopping out of bed and Beth Grant says to Mary McDonald, great boobs, Mary. (laughs) Mary (laughs) McDonald goes, and they're mine. (laughs) Donnie wakes up on the golf course with that warning written on his arm and marker, the time stamp, a destined first crossing of paths with Jim Cunningham as well here, and then he heads home. The FAA puts them up at a hotel, and the next day he's greeted at the bus stop as the boy who cheated death One of my favorite lines here, uh, first, it's already good with, now that you're famous, you gotta have a smoke, which is very funny. But then also, that dorky friend is like, it's good shit. And Donnie says, it's a fucking cigarette.
1: (laughs) Which (laughs) has been one of my favorite lines, too. I'm so glad you brought it up. It's so, so, so funny.
0: Saying a cigarette is good shit is the most (laughs) true-to-life how kids talk (laughs) <laughs> line i've ever heard i think
1: it's so so good it makes me laugh every time yeah
0: next up we get this amazing school montage great steady cam. there's also ramp up and down to, to shift the speeds around I, it's really engaging you know it's it's a pretty long montage but it works it's it captures it you see everybody you need to see you see how they're sort of all blending around it works really well
1: yeah, head over heels, really. The the song perfectly fits the, fits that montage, too. It, it's, it's such yeah. a good moment.
0: So we settle in on Donnie in his English class. He's discussing the destructors and destruction as an act of creation, which, uh, again, does play into things. Richard Kelly read the Graham Greene story in junior year. He says that he loved it, and that's why he wanted to include it. And Gretchen arrives late, and she's assigned to sit next to the boy she thinks is cutest. And her gaze falls on Donnie. I love the like big smirk on Jake's face as she sits down. Yeah. just
1: really funny stuff. but also the shittiest thing a teacher could ever do I think. Oh yeah to you oh, on for sure stay at school. <laughs>
0: yeah uh, Dad drives Donnie to therapy. I thought it was really funny that after I heard them complain in the commentary for Michael Clayton about how annoying it is to shoot in a car like a practical car, they did it here too. They talked about how much time, like, time just eats away when you've only got so much road, plus the size of the car. He's having to stick his head forward from the back so the dad has somebody to talk to with the camera taking up that space, throws off a ton of heat and makes it a thousand degrees. Uh, Kelly said he's never doing it again. Rear projection from now mm-hmm. on. I just think it's, you know, I would never have expected practical cars to be such an issue, yeah, but I, two I, commentaries. I wouldn't
1: either, but yeah, I've. I, I Hearing it, yeah, that makes sense. Like why it would be so yeah. annoying. Yeah.
0: They almost hit grandma death though. An elderly lady who walks back and forth checking her mail all day. A real person was nicknamed this in his town growing up. She did walk back and forth to her mailbox. She did almost get hit and uh it's it's quite a character.
1: <laughs> Richard Kelly tells a story of his own brother smashing her mailbox, right? Or stealing her mail. Mm-hmm. Is it one of those two it's one of those two things and it's like he kind of laughs about it, but it's like it's fucked. up. it's kind of fucked up if you think about it.
0: Yeah, I think one of the other actors. I want to say it might have been. It was Gus Jake Gyllenhaal. It was it's all like, the Jake Gyllenhaal one.
1: And Jake and Jake it? is kind of like it. Oh, that's that's that sucks. Kind of. Yeah, he's like
0: that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> At therapy, he discusses Frank the Bunny. I made a new friend, real or imaginary. Imaginary. <laughs> she asks, "Do you think the world is coming to an end?" And he says, "No." that's stupid. And he laughs. And I, you know, it's it's just, it's like a funny, bittersweet moment where you see him like actually consider it. And then he like, is like, no, I can't trust myself and my, my vision. So that would be stupid for this to be the case. Next up is health class. They're learning from a Jim Cunningham Cunning Visions video. So fucking funny. This little bedwetting kid being like, I'm not afraid anymore. (laughs) Also, he gets his ass padded by Jim for some foreshadowing. Uh, and my favorite part, the boom mic dropping into frame, which is <laughs> a hallmark of that sort of yes. video.
1: Yes. There's a very cute story of uh, Patrick Swayze, his wife. Uh, he He was wearing his own 80s clothes um and his wife uh was the one that picked out all of his clothes for him and apparently she loved going through all of his old clothes and picking out his outfits for him to wear
0: in the movie yeah that that was a fun story he was like oh i think you should wear this or maybe this one yeah that's that would be fun such a cute thing sleeping that night donnie has a vision of the school flooded and he's summoned by frank to take an axe to the school's water main really really funny moment in the commentary with jake where it's the flooded school, and Richard is talking about it, referencing some famous photograph, and it cuts to the shot of Donnie with the axe and Frank behind him. And Jake cuts in to tell this story about how this scene was shot really late, and he made that face because there was pizza he couldn't have until they were done, (laughs) positioned right behind the camera. And Kelly is like, are you fucking kidding me, interrupting (laughs) me for that story? (laughs) (laughs) Fun, playful fight between them. They're cute. And it's October 6th, 1988, 24 days remaining. School is canceled, baby. It's not just the water. There's an axe in the solid bronze head of the mascot statue, the mongrel, and some graffiti that says, they made me do it. And I'll say it. This statue is fucked up looking.
1: Yeah, that's a scary mascot.
0: Yeah. Richard apparently still has the head. I wouldn't want that thing hanging around.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: Walking back home, he interrupts the bullies harassing Gretchen and walks her home. He jokes here to Gretchen about being a superhero because of his alliterative name, but Richard explicitly said he is. He is the living receiver, he's saving the world, they go out at night, he uses his enhanced capabilities. You know, like you said, he talks about not really being a comics guy, but it sort of fits the bill enough that I'm like, "Uh, okay, I guess. Okay. Also interesting to me that he directly addresses the causality, where he says, if school wasn't flooded, we never would have had this conversation. Mm-hmm. Also, also, there's some fun foreshadowing when he warns her that they like to steal shit. So, you know, this is conversation is pulling a lot of duty here. And they agree to date or go together. They try something new at therapy. Hypnosis doesn't go great. School is also not going great. Uh, so he and the boys blow off some steam with beers and shooting glass bottles. Hell
1: yeah, brother! That's what you do. <laughs> kind of. I, I, you know what? I kind of did something similar like to this
0: with beers. Yeah, it's it, you know we joke, but it also it kind of is what you do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, you fuck around. <laughs> uh, this scene in particular, they're they're talking about like the specifics of how Smurfs have sex or whatever, or that's reproduce.
0: right. the infamous Smurf scene.
1: Yes. This scene in particular uh, feels very inspired by Kevin Smith to me. It feels like an yeah. ode to Kevin Smith. This is He just watched Clerks. He wants to do a little bit of Clerks in his movie. That's how I've always felt about this.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely think that that comes across. He originally was shooting at stuffed animals, and one of them is a Smurf doll, which is why it comes up. And he talked about having to go through the process of clearing the use. They get on this conference call with the Belgian estate controlling the Smurf likeness at (laughs) 5 a.m. They even drag Drew in to try and convince them. And then it lasts 15 seconds because they're like, we agree with Donnie's interpretation and he corrects the other kids who agree that he's right so you can use it. Mm -hmm. And then after going through this whole rigmarole, they couldn't even find a doll. That's funny. The PTA meeting that night is derailed by Kitty, who feels entitled to speak as the only one who transcends the parent-teacher bridge. And she thinks that The Destructors is pornography that should be banned. Uh, The kind of person we see a lot of these days. And um, she just fucking sucks big time. (laughs) Like, uh, this guise of morality is – it's ugly. It's very ugly stuff. Yeah, she is – Definitely a,
1: a real person, and like, a t- yeah, that is unfortunately they have they have uh they have like kind of power, you know, like, the, yeah, like, uh, Kitty does kind of ultimately get most of the things she wants, yeah, and it's that, uh, yeah, it's a shame.
0: Meanwhile, Donnie hallucinates Frank behind a weird barrier. He says, I can do anything I want, and so can you. Uh, He also says he made Donnie do it because they're in grave danger, and he came here via time travel. This is interrupted by Samantha, though, and his sister Samantha, younger sister, who hasn't come up (laughs) in the synopsis yet, so I don't know why I said it. Like, everyone would know who that is. (laughs) But she interrupts him. Donnie says he was just taking his pills. In the script and in the deleted scenes, we see that the pills that Donnie is taking are placebos. Uh, They're meant to just sort of get Donnie out of his head which I think adds a lot to the scene later on where Rose Darko agrees to try increasing his medication, presumably to actually medication. It is kind of an interesting thing to pull out. I'm curious to hear what you think about the decision to remove the idea that it's placebos.
1: We'll probably talk about this later, but I love the director's cut, the controversial director's cut. But this is my least favorite addition to the director's cut. I'm glad this is cut out of theatrical i think it implies this idea that this could all be hallucinations that donnie is having and and they could be being caused by the medicine in some way i I, i'm not really uh explaining myself well for some reason my brain went blank but like i really hate i just hate the the idea that these pills have been placebos this whole time. I think it kind of feeds into this, like, anti-psychiatry kind of narrative, accidentally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, it's it's the one thing I truly hate about the director's cut.
0: Yeah, I definitely think it's improved on by cutting it. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just also not necessary. Not necessary, <laughs> like it's,
1: true. Yeah, like it's also not necessary, like.
0: Day two of the Cunning Visions videos in health class, they do an insane lifeline exercise. Richard said, some people might think this is broad, but this happened. I had this exact curriculum in the ninth grade, (laughs) this exact experience with the teacher. It all occurred. Yeah. Uh, He also dunks on Dr. Phil for an extended segment during the health class scene and the assembly later. (laughs) (laughs) Which, first off, he calls him Dr. Bill the whole time by accident, because he can't remember his name. And then he calls him the Bobby Knight of self-help.
1: Fucking baller. Fucking baller. Yeah. Great shit.
0: Donnie is ejected from this assembly, or from, excuse me, from the health class for refusing to simplify the ethical dilemma on his prompt card into an X on the spectrum of fear and love. Uh, And he tells Mrs. Farmer to forcibly insert the card into her anus (laughs) on the way out of the meeting with his family. Kitty casts aspersions on Rose Darko's parenting, which is an important moment. Uh, and Donnie chats time travel with Professor Monotov and he receives a book written by Roberta Sparrow called The Philosophy of Time Travel which is as we learn the real name of grandma death. He discusses the idea that Frank wants him to talk to Roberta with his psychiatrist and reveals what Roberta whispered to him earlier in the movie when they almost hit her with his, with the car that every living creature on earth dies alone. This is big. It reveals Donnie's fear and his distress that he's put him through, put himself through, debating the existence of God. Richard Kelly himself said that this is the most important scene in the movie. And it does, I think, reveal a lot of the depth of what Donnie is going through and and sort of the existential angst that you mentioned very early in the conversation um, sort of literalized on screen.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: That night, while watching football with Du Boys, he first sees the Liquid Spheres of Destiny, a form of time travel that depicts your path forward emanating from your chest. Appropriate, it happens during a football game as the initial concept came from watching John Madden draw arrows from football players on replays. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Donnie follows his, his path to his parents' room and the closet where he finds a gun. And the next day... He's walking with Gretchen, who rebuffs his attempt at a kiss, because she wants to wait for when it reminds her how beautiful the world can be. Uh, There's also the crucial line that does get repeated later on about what if you could go back and take back the hours of pain, unflapping the butterfly's wings, so to speak. She also points out the fat guy watching them, which is actually one of the FAA guys in disguise, which is really Mm -hmm. fun. You see him pop up a few times. And they're freaked out and watching him, he does like a funny shuffle away. He like throws his cigarette down real quick and gets out of there. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, that, 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 that's a cute detail. It took me like many, many watches to find.
0: While the parents have a progress report with the therapist, who basically says that Donnie can't cope with the external threats that he feels, Donnie has another vision of Frank. And this time he attempts to stab Frank with a kitchen knife and break through the barrier, but it holds and Frank's one eye glows brighter and brighter. Apparently, this stabbing the barrier was a really complicated uh, effect because the plate glass was going to scratch, and it had a lot of effects already. And quick cutting away, everyone was freaked out about having to get it on the first take, and then they wound up having to use the second take after all and digitally remove the scratches. So this was like one of the most complicated scenes in the movie. I believe it, and it,
1: it and it looks fantastic. Uh, that 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 yeah. stabbing and the 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 way that it ripples and like. I, it's uh, kind of, yeah, it's a really amazing effect, honestly, like even still.
0: This is followed by a scene that might not seem important, but I love, where the two young teachers are just kind of looking at each other, and Monitov says, Donnie Darko, <laughs> yeah. and he scoffs in amusement, and Pomerov sighs and goes, I know, and they laugh together. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's totally
1: a thing that would happen in teachers' lounges, like just shitting on the kids or whatever, or it's a thing you <laughs> imagined
0: would happen. You know, Mm -hmm. Jim Cunningham has been brought in to actually speak to the school. Uh, Very funny that the kid in the assembly is a plant. Uh, He was the bedwetter in the tape. The one who says, I'm not afraid anymore. In the director's cut, you see Jim give him like a little nod when nobody is jumping up to ask any more questions. And so he like hustles up there to ask about getting into fights. I have never caught that. Amazing. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool little thing. Donnie causes a stir. When he asks how much they paid Jim to be there, and when they try to placate him, he gives angry advice to the suckers on stage, but it's also practical and actionable. Ultimately, he says, yes, I'm pretty troubled, and I'm pretty confused, and I'm afraid, really afraid, but I think you're the fucking antichrist.
1: <laughs> Donnie's so cool. Donnie is like <laughs> like a, a total dork's version of like, a, of like what if I was cool. <laughs> like, this is the way I, – I would totally tell them off perfectly like this.
0: Hell yeah. Yeah. That's right. He argues about free will with Monotov and God-controlling time, and Monotov can't get into God because these teachers are on thin ice. And the next morning, Donnie finds Cunningham's wallet on the sidewalk. He realizes which house is his. And Frank makes it very clear. He says, now you know which house is his, just in case people didn't <laughs> pick up on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know. That,
1: I, I know that's a funny thing, but like, I, I just want to bring up something that I should have mentioned before: is like how much I love Frank's voice. It's so like soft and mm-hmm. quiet, and it doesn't it doesn't feel menacing. It it's just like the, the effects they add onto it are wonderful, and I think uh, uh, G- James Duval as uh, actor's name, like I think he does just a, a wonderful job with it. Yeah.
0: Uh, At therapy, Donnie discusses the spears, but he says that he found nothing when he followed his. I think it's really interesting. I don't know if I have anything to say about it, but I find it very interesting that this is the first thing that he lies about to his therapist, even when he's been talking about hallucinating six-foot bunnies, that he Mm -hmm. lies about finding the gun.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is is interesting. And it's, I don't know, it could just be that He's thinking like that's something actionable, right? Like, but 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 admitting to breaking the, the water main has he done that yet?
0: No. no. Later oh, on, later. Um, later. he, yeah, he so, sort
1: of so he does all tumbles yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. So he doesn't want to like give her reason to. Yeah, it makes sense, I guess. Right.
0: Yeah. It's also interesting. They talk in the commentary about like the level of actionability. Where because he hasn't actually hurt anybody yet, mm-hmm. uh, only has the threat of it, that he she has to call the parents, but not the cops, basically. Yeah. Um, which is why you'll later hear her like being like, please call me back as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> then at, or at, back at class, he and Gretchen present the IMGs, the infant memory generators, Monotov fucking... Gets their ass so good. He's like, oh, uh, did you ever even consider that darkness is good? Actually, you dumb asses. <laughs> <laughs> and he's right. They should have considered that. Yeah. The bullies rudely bring up the fact that Gretchen's stepdad has stabbed her mom a bunch in the chest. And that's why they moved here. Uh, and they rush out from this. And when Donnie goes to comfort her, she kisses him. Now is when she needs the reminder of the beauty of life. They go to see Evil Dead, and I guess they both fell asleep because that's when Frank talks to Donnie. It took me several watches to realize that both of these assholes fell asleep during one of the all-time greats. During Dead, yeah, really?
1: Evil Dead in a completely empty theater. Also, this is a double. This is a Halloween Frightmare double feature, is what it's billed at the Arrow. Uh, that's which right. Is somehow in their little town. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, the Halloween Frightmare double feature is. Evil Dead and The Last Temptation of Christ.
0: They also talked about how they wanted to use Chud, but couldn't track down the rights, so they went with Evil Dead, which Raimi let them use for free. Yeah, like, Um, they
1: they were, like, trying so hard to get Chud, and then they just, like, and they could not, they couldn't even figure out who owned the rights to it. Like, that's how hard it was to even get Chud, and so, and but then they, like, just, like, had somebody call Sam Raimi, and he was like, yeah, do it. (laughs) Use use Evil Dead. Yeah.
0: (laughs) On the commentary, they pitched Chud 3, Aqua Chud in 3D, which I'm into. (laughs) Sure, why not? It also, if it had been Chud, it would have put a bow on him calling Cunningham a Chud to Gretchen. Sure. But I think it would have been funny if they, like, crappily dubbed in, he's such an evil dead. (laughs) (laughs) He's such a
1: deadite.
0: (laughs) He and Frank chat in this movie theater here. Why do they call you Frank? Which uh, he says that he is the third, basically Frank the third, and this plays into the echo tangent motif in an interesting way. This is also where we get the "Why do you wear that stupid bunny slash man suit?" exchange, mm-hmm. which is a classic. And Donnie demands Frank take off the mask, and it's just a, a sweet young man under there with a friggin' shot out eye, a huge fucking
1: bullet in his eye, bleeding. Yeah, it's great. And still has that soft voice. That soft voice. The scene is. Oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah, iconic. Yeah. It's like angelic and haunting in a way. It's so, oh God, it's, uh, I get chills every time I see it. It's just so well done.
0: He tells Donnie to watch the screen, which warps to show him a time portal. One thing that I thought was really interesting is, uh, I don't think it's accidental, is that the movie bursts into this time portal with the clock on screen, just like When we entered the Tangent Universe, uh, there was the time portal with the clock on screen. Cool. He then tells Donnie to burn down Cunningham's house. Uh, Donnie has a history of arson, which is more fodder for this being his destiny, perhaps. Mm -hmm. He leaves the theater and we see the billboard. As you say, Evil Dead was playing alongside The Last Temptation of Christ. Kelly says in the commentary, basically, that it's just a sight gag. But there is an interesting structural connection where in that movie – Jesus has a vision of accepting the offer of Satan in disguise to not be the Messiah. And he gets to live a long life and he dies of old age. But when the ramifications of this denial are made clear to him, he accepts his death. He says, I want to pay the price. I want to be the Messiah. And he's abruptly brought back to the crucifixion right before he accepted the offer. And so it's kind of easy to see that layering over this movie. Yeah. With Frank, promises him power to do anything he wants, in the Satan position, luring him out of bed. But it's crucial in both movies that the Messiah needs to experience the diverted path. Jesus needs to see what he's giving up, while here, Donnie needs to know what he's saving. He needs to spend this time with Gretchen and with all the other people that he sees have the, the the ripple effects of of existing, basically, of having survived this jet crash.
1: Yeah, perfectly put.
0: There's a talent show at school that Donnie is missing. Uh, we first see Charita doing a dance to a chorus of Snickers, a get off the stage, a you suck as she rushes off stage. If you stretch a bit. Honoring tradition is a sort of a form of time travel, too. I'm putting on my tinfoil hat for that one. <laughs> sure. Next up, though, is Sparkle Motion. And they dance to Duran Duran's Notorious, which is a very fun song. Uh, originally, it was supposed to be West End Girls. But, you know, I think it works totally fine yeah. with this. Yeah. Notorious is great.
1: There's a funny exchange with uh, Beth Grant, uh, Kitty, to one, of the, to one of the kids right before they
0: go out. If you have to vomit, just swallow it. <laughs> I also like if you compare the two dances, uh, Charita's dance is much more vulnerable. Yeah. And this is interestingly juxtaposed, especially in the way it's received by the audience. They also talk in the commentary about this being a contrast between expression and exploitation, plus a reflection of the ethical grayness of societal acceptance of a much more sexualized dance being done by children Mm -hmm. and how that ties to the more extreme example of the community embracing the pedophile in their midst. You know, I I think, I don't think he's saying that it's like a a one-to-one comparison, but I think he's saying like, if we have Mm -hmm. all accepted this as normal, like, you know, it's no surprise that this pervert feels emboldened to get his jollies.
1: Yeah, it's... Definitely an interesting, like, thing to put into your movie. Like, it's a it's a weird, like, extra layer that is thought-provoking, yeah.
0: Amazing slow-motion glasses pull and nod from the Star Search lady. Maybe <laughs> yeah. the best performance in the movie. <laughs> yeah.
1: is <laughs> great.
0: Then hard cut to Charita outside alone before Donnie rejoins Gretchen. The next morning, the news says the fire revealed a kiddie porn dungeon in Cunningham's house. October 24th, six <laughs> days remaining. I know, Patrick, you can't be doing that, bro. <laughs> six days left, Karen Pomerov is being fired. There are some Alice in Wonderland elements, like like the Faustian stuff. They're sort of just sprinkled on. Donnie is obviously following a rabbit. But this also calls to mind the trial and the Red Queen putting sentencing first with his inability to name a specific inappropriate transgression. He says, I can't get into a debate. I've made myself clear. You literally have not said anything, pal. Another really funny moment in the commentary where he directly calls out a reviewer who mocked the we are losing these kids to apathy line. And he says, hey, fuck you. (laughs) And you know what? It's true. Apathy abounds. So he, he, again, very prescient. This is followed by an announcement that the dance team has been invited to Star Search, just as they see the newspaper about Jim. And so Kitty goes to see Rose Darko and ask her to chaperone the girl's trip so that she can support Jim at his arraignment. Rose's commitment to Sparkle Motion is in question.
1: The, 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 the one person who's into, you know, banning or to getting teachers fired because they're teaching wrong literature. Of course, she's there to uh, defend the pedophile, right? Like, right? like He draws these lines very, 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 very clearly.
0: And as insidious as the fact that she was going to be the chaperone. Like, she's the one who is going to be there warping these children's minds.
1: I, frankly, I think she's in on it. She knows about it. I, I don't think she's surprised by this. That, that That's my conspiracy theory about this.
0: This is pretty nasty to me. Kitty has made this man a part of her identity, and it consumes her. She talks about how long they've worked for the Star Search opportunity, which is... I won't get into... The ethical <laughs> ramifications of that in and of itself. But she would rather skip her daughter's big day to appear at the arraignment of a pedophile rather than reconsider her worldview.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what these people are. They're, 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 they're freaks.
0: Yeah. Rose tells her son that she's going. There's a really nice moment between the two of them when he asks her how it feels to have a wacko for a son. And she says it feels wonderful.
1: Ah, beautiful. What a beautiful uh, beautiful exchange.
0: Yeah. Donnie writes Roberta a letter. He leaves it in her mailbox. And it's October 26th, four days remaining. He talks to Miss Pomerov on her way out. He asks why she wrote Cellar Door on the board. This is part of the manipulated living of it all. These mentors who've been guiding him all along, leading him down the path towards the accident. Donnie sees Charita alone in the hall. He promises her one day things will get better for her. She freaks out and runs, dropping her books. She reveals her crush on Donnie. She's been writing his name on the paper book cover.
1: Ooh, Charita! Charita's so it's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing good happens to her. It'd be nice if, like, she didn't run away. Like, like they, they kissed or something. Like, I, I wish I wish she had a better outcome.
0: Mm, it's not great for Charita out there, but as he says, hopefully things will get better.
1: Definitely not. And, and, and in a world without Donnie, it gets even worse.
0: At therapy, under hypnosis, he reveals that he feels regret about being denied hungry, hungry hippos for Christmas as a lad. But he also reveals that he regrets doing it again. Uh-oh. I have to obey Frank. He saved my life. I have to obey him or I'll be left all alone. Telling statement. Time's up, Frank says. And suddenly Frank is there. And he's scary and he shows Donnie a vision of the sky opening up and the therapist says, if the sky were to open up, there would be no laws, no rules, just you, your memories, and the people you've touched. Uh, you know, sort of laying out the thesis of the movie the, a little bit there. The,
1: the, the, what, what, maybe the weirdest uh, line spoken in the movie. Why did <laughs> anybody say that? It is a little strange, but I, mean, I, I guess, guess you have to kind of get it out baby, there. Whatever, but but, but like yeah. <laughs> I, I, they're never this uh, obvious about it. I guess we're getting to the end of the movie, so maybe they're, maybe things are breaking down and they're starting to be more obvious, or yeah, maybe she's just extremely poetic and chaotic. Even it's a weird thing to say to a kid like that, yeah.
0: It is. You're right. It is a weird thing to say. <laughs> yes.
1: It's just, it's just bizarre and uh, probably un, uh, unadvisable. Probably not a thing. It's not a thing to do. Yeah. Hmm.
0: October 29th, one day remaining. Donnie's sister got into Harvard, which is great. They're going to throw a party to celebrate. Yeah. Donnie's pals arrive. Very fun exchange between them. But Gretchen also arrives and less fun uh, because her mom is missing. And the cops told her to go to a safe place, so she goes to Donnie, which is of course very cute that she considers him to be the safe place. They smooch on the bed. She says some people are just born with tragedy in their blood. <laughs> oh, Gretchen. <laughs> yeah. That's a very that like again. It's funny because it is very melodramatic, but like that's how teenagers talk. Yeah. Like they say things like this 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 cigarette is good shit. People are born with tragedy in their blood, and I'm fucking so sad. Like, it it all works for these kids. The camera stops on the clock once more. As it hits midnight, we get another title card. October 30th, six hours remain. Donnie sees the spears show up again, and when he looks through Gretchen's, he sees her future, and he says, We gotta go see Grandma Death. It's about Frank. Time is running out. The cellar door clue finally clicked. He and Gretchen break into Grandma Death's basement where she keeps her gem collection. They're jewels, Betty. In terms of the Campbell mythology stuff, which Richard uh, t- referenced a lot in the commentaries and talking about this movie, he basically talks about how the Campbell mythology cycle, like cycle, everything basically follows it. And, uh, you know, even if when you're breaking it, you have to know the rules, yada, yada, yada. All the classic stuff. But there's a lot of Campbell influence on this he says, this is the going into the cave to find the treasure. And they're not the only ones, apparently, because the bullies are there and they force Gretchen and Donnie out of the out of the out at knife point. Again, be careful. They steal shit called back to a car comes, though, and they're in the middle of the road. And this car, because it's drunkenly speeding because it's Frank's GT and it skids out of the way of grandma death plows over Gretchen like it's fucking toxic Avenger over here really just grim scene to watch
1: yeah really really nasty cruel death for gretchen here
0: and frank gets out he delivers a great performance of these few normal lines and then is promptly shot by donnie sealing the trap and creating the possibility of frank talking to him in the first place as a manipulated dead Donnie heads home, he kisses his sister goodbye, he heads for the cliffside where he wakes up in the opening scene as a portal starts to open in the sky. They did say the egregious blockbuster card in the shot as he grabs his keys helped pay for the movie. (laughs) But once, once he's at the cliff, he finishes the summoning of the portal, he tears the engine off the jet, he sends it through to the primary universe. He hears Gretchen's voice asking about replacing the pain with something better as he looks at her corpse peacefully, and suddenly the movie starts to reverse. Very fun scene. I like getting to see it sort of unravel in this way. You know, it would be very easy to just jump forward or jump back, however you want to describe it. But, uh, you know, having the time to be like, oh, look at everything it being undone. I, yeah, I'm glad they took the time for that.
1: Uh, yeah, it it is nice. Uh, nice little
0: montage. Yeah. And it stops at that initial shot of the clock as well. It does,
1: yes. And then, uh, you know, it leads to Donnie in his bed laughing.
0: Laughing like a fucking weirdo.
1: (laughs) Like a a little weirdo knows he's about to die. It's all a dream. It's all fake. Life life is a joke.
0: (laughs) He also is next to an extra print of an eye with a skull reflected in it. Of course, you know, thematic for how he's having to stare death in the eye and accept it, basically. He laughs. Elizabeth comes home. Dad snoozes in the den. There's Frank's honking. And down comes the engine, this time crushing Donnie. Uh, There is a a sort of a few ways to take the laughter. It could be because he thinks it's a dream and he's relieved. It could be because he's enlightened and accepting of the absurdity. That's how I see it. Yeah. You know, it would make sense to me if it's a dream thing. You know, know, we see everyone else awakening from quote unquote dreams with memories of what happened. So it's possible that we just saw his a little earlier than the others. But one other possibility and this I think is more towards the absurd side, is that it's a laugh of relief uh, at confirming the existence of a higher power. Mm. In the director's cut, there is some technology imagery that combined with the self-professed Cameron admiration might make me think that Donnie is a John Connor type and this was all set up by a future society. But especially in the theatrical version, it could just as easily be god intervening and this would further the parallel between donnie and the last temptation of christ and when we saw donnie admitting his fear of dying alone to his therapist like i said kelly said it was the most important scene of the movie and that's because by opening himself up to this designated fate and the manipulation of a higher power that solitude is gone he no longer fears death so yeah you know i I think that the laughter is kind of like hey death is not the worst thing basically.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: There was a fucked up shot of him impaled by a wooden beam that they showed in the making of documentary. It did not like that one bit. <laughs> I,
1: I, I don't know if I've seen that. I don't, I don't want to see that,
0: <laughs> but Donnie does die. And we see the other characters waking up as mad world plays.
1: I'm shocked by the, by the, the effect of the jet engine coming through the, the bedroom, but the, the, the fact that they even did that and that it looks as good as it does. Uh, It's, 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 uh, it's surprising for a movie this low budget uh, that has shied away from other things that they could have showed you probably because of budget reasons that they, they full on like smash the jet engine, a real jet engine, I think.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A real jet engine through this, like top of this
0: set. So funny that they were like, this one, we really only had one chance at. (laughs) Yeah. People do seem to have some kind of recollection or guilt about what they've done or experienced, which is something that Roberta predicted in the book. And the family is going through it in the morning, and who should ride up on a bike to see what the commotion is about but Gretchen. And she hears from a neighbor that Donnie got smushed by a jet, very funny way to put it by this child, (laughs) smushed by a jet engine, and she waves to Rose with a sense of deja vu. I take it as their shared feeling uh, you know, that shared connection of having died in the Tangent universe, yeah. but also the pain of a severed connection that won't happen without Donnie to bring them together.
1: Yeah, it's, it's their their exchange is one of the most beautiful in the movie, uh, one of the most beautiful moments in the movie. I mean,
0: Yeah. And this connection, whatever it may lead to, does sort of tie back to the meaning of the burned money and destruction as an act of creation that even in death. Uh, you know, there is an element of them getting together and ha- having a new connection. Yeah. The FAA loads up the engine, Ark of the Covenant style. They stash it in a warehouse, argue about it, then forget about it, per Kelly. Again, very Spielbergian. Mm-hmm. I also laughed. As the movie ended, in the commentary, he goes, There will never be a sequel to this film as far as I'm concerned. That would destroy its integrity.
1: Yeah, he, he does <laughs> say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so but okay so there is okay uh, jesus do we want to open this now there is a sequel to this (laughs) movie it's called s darko it's like unofficial richard kelly had nothing to do with it he hates it he hates the idea that it exists but then there's also i've never seen it there but i have it there's also a sequel that he has been working on a real sequel that is his apparently he showed the draft the first draft to it was something he was just like kind of working on, but then he like showed the first draft to James Cameron, and James Cameron oh, said it was great and uh, that he should keep working on it. So he has been. And uh, Richard Kelly, we know his career is kind of he hasn't made a movie since 2011, and it's kind of had ups and downs. It's had it's had ups and downs, and I think like you talked about it earlier. I think it's because he's such a committed to his vision filmmaker. He's not somebody who's going to uh, let. Uh, other people tell him what to do, so he's going to do everything on his own terms. So that uh, very, very much limits his what he gets to do. Uh, like, like he turned down directing an X Men movie. I think it was Last Stand to make Southland Tales, which is like one of the most bizarre movies ever made and is a total like total flop. One of the most infamous flops ever. Brilliant movie, uh, but um, masterpiece. But, uh, but yeah, he's somebody like with such a creative vision that I don't know s- to see him come back to it 20 something years later. I hope that the nostalgia, uh, for Donnie Darko is there. Like, if he gets if he's going to be able to make more movies that he wants to make, like, he wants to make Southland Tales the prequel. Uh, he wants, which is the most ambitious thing I've ever fucking heard. He wants to make kind of a follow-up on the box in in, in
0: in a way. There's like a ton of director's cut footage for that too, right? That he yes. was like, I want to put st- Stitch in like 45 more minutes of the box. Yes, absolutely. And, and
1: like there's like a Rod Serling biopic he was – he's supposed to make. I don't know where that's at. But like he, he wants to do more stuff with the box, more stuff with Southland Tales. I think it's smartest to start with Donnie Darko. I think it's potentially possible – for a Donnie Darko 2 to be a launch pad for him to get a little clout back. Mm. So I, I, I'm glad about his decision to go back on that and start working on it 20 years later. I don't know. I, I don't know what it looks like, but I think there's something that can be done, and I, I trust him. So
0: I, I guess for me that it's like if the options are... Leave Richard Kelly as the most indirector jail of all time guy, <laughs> or get a sequel to Donnie Darko that, you know, maybe it's as good as Donnie Darko and maybe not, but, like, we get Richard Kelly back in the game. I think I'm willing to take getting Donnie Darko 2 on this.
1: Hell yeah. Hell yeah.
0: <clears throat> so, to sum up the plot, tie all the loose ends together – There's a rip in the space-time continuum. Somebody, God, a future society, whatever you want, steps in to stop this unstable tangent universe from creating a black hole and tearing apart everything by manipulating the denizens of said universe. The jet engine is part of the instability of the universe. There's a glitch where it copies and pastes this engine while trying to navigate the temporal paradox. And because two engines can't exist in the same place at the same time, one of them falls. This is the artifact that Donnie will eventually send to the main universe and crush himself, allowing the Tangent to collapse with the artifact, aka the engine, the only remnant. Donnie getting up does not cause the rip, it's a symptom. Frank can't communicate with him until he's manipulated dead, and Donnie can't use his powers until he's a living receiver. Frank is manipulated to manipulate Donnie, leading to his own death, But more importantly, to Gretchen's, which is the insurance trap, in quotes, that gets Donnie to collapse the universe. And as Gretchen says, take all those hours of pain and darkness and replace them with something better. He's going to save not just Gretchen, but his mother, his sister, Frank, the whole gang, even sickos like Cunningham, and they'll never know it. Martyrdom complete. The last temptation of Christ has happened. Mm -mm. And now, Siobhan. We've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start.
1: Oh, dear God. Uh, Okay. Like I said, I think this is an incredible gateway to make new film nerds. Which, as we all know from our experiences through Twitter, podcasting, uh, life in general... We, we need more uh, film nerds. Okay? Absolutely. And I think that the movie launched the career of one of the most fascinating directors of all time. He's only made three movies, but I still think you can absolutely call him that. Now, what it is culturally, it absolutely has its place in the culture. It is an a weirdly iconic movie for how big of a failure it was, but it's kind of beloved and misunderstood and cherished by so many. It is mysterious. It is ethereal. It is alluring. It is everything a great mystery movie could, should be. It is a, it is a puzzle that you can put together yourself and you can solve and you can feel super smart about it. It is a great film uh, that is great and really great. So I'm going to say five stars on Donnie Darko, five forks. Is that what we do here? I think so. Yeah, five forks and, and five times, so six forks. <laughs> six forks and a tine, I guess, is what that works out to. So, six forks and a tine to, uh, and ten bags of popcorn to, and a, and a little bunny mask and a little bunny mask <laughs> to, <laughs> to Tony Darko, the best horror film ever made.
0: I say, well, put us in the hand holding club, Siobhan, because I agree, <laughs> this is the best horror movie ever made, partially because it is so non-judgmental of its characters. Mm. Mm. Kelly said, In this 28-day universe, everyone has to confront something. They have been knocked down and wonder why the world never turns in their favor. That's the relatability that makes people connect. Not just Jake putting a pretty face on alienation, but also understanding that we're all going through our own issues. I also like, despite how they treat Cunningham's videos as a joke, they do touch on something kind of real which is people being a prisoner of fear. Specifically, the fear of failure, I think, comes through in a major way. We see how Mrs. Darko reacts to Kitty questioning her parents. We see the teachers feeling like they're losing the kids to apathy. All of these people who feel like they're failing in their calling. There's also an interesting rejection of dichotomous thinking. Not only does Donnie yell at Kitty Farmer about taking the whole spectrum of emotion into consideration when determining where Ling Ling's keeping the money goes on the lifeline – But he also discusses the inability to fall one way or another about the existence of God. That's too simple, he tells Kitty. That's absurd, he tells his doctor. And so, too, you can have several interpretations of the movie. Plus, I like that his list of inspirational directors is extremely telling, and how he truly takes his influences and then makes it his own. This is not only the case in Donnie Darko, you know, The Box and Southland Tales Are both so clearly his own influences just put into a blender and then guzzled, filtered through his own body. It's it's incredible stuff. Yes. And so in this, the bittersweet family drama of Spielberg blended with the Zemeckis back to the future means that in this story, giving his father self-confidence comes at the expense of Marty being born at all. And in that way. Get re- Oh, but this is going to sound so fucking up my own ass, but get ready. <laughs> it gives you a look at the moral complexity of what it would be like to be gone.
1: Fuck yeah! <laughs> Fuck yeah. Yes, it does.
0: Do you have Donnie get up? Ostensibly a good act, but it leads to the loss of, quote, the only good teacher at Middlesex, according to a deleted scene, and the deaths of Frank, Gretchen, his mother, and his sister, or... Do you save those lives and allow Donnie to die and a monstrous predator to remain hidden? Even the obituary on the website says that he cleaned up the dungeon before killing himself, and nobody ever found out. Again, it's not so simple, Mrs. Farmer. Every choice has ripples. And I know that Kelly has said it's not meant to condemn one side of the political aisle. You have some nice Republicans with his parents— but I'll just say that it seems pretty clear on which side the movie feels is responsible for the moral rot between the conservative kitty and Cunningham versus the youth and progressive teachers, Monotov and Pomeroy. And then this is all wrapped up in a great, funny movie. So many true-to-kid lines, like confidently declaring feces are baby mice. The really good shit, it's a cigarette exchange. Donnie's friend insisting keg beer is for pussies. It's so fucking funny. It's more than a time travel movie. It's more than a teen drama. It takes these two things that are so difficult to pull off well, slams them together, and somehow the sum is even greater than the the, or the whole is better than the sum of the parts. However the fuck it that expression goes, that's what's happening here. It's the best horror movie ever made. That's right.
1: I'm glad we can agree on that.
0: That's right. Siobhan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Please oh tell the people where they can find you. Check out your own podcast. Hear all about Southland Tales.
1: Oh, my God. Okay. Well, first, George, thank you so much for having having, having me. This <laughs> is uh, by far the best podcasting experience I've ever had, and that includes the 20-something episodes I've had of my Podcast, have a nice apocalypse. It's like apocalypse, but pod in there. Classic. Thank you. We talk about <laughs> it's ostensibly about the career of Richard Kelly, but more specifically, it is about the film Southland Tales. We have broken down the theatrical version in so much detail, <laughs> and we are in the middle of breaking down the con cut version in so much detail way too much detail it is a fascinating movie we keep finding new shit every time we talk about it i think it is worthy of this discussion i think kevin uh kevin kevin smith i think uh uh, richard kelly is worthy of all this discussion as well and that is why we do it we love doing it uh for the fans we've had some great guests uh fans of george's podcast here may remember a couple episodes ago having vera drew we've had vera drew don't, didn't That's you right. like her on George's episode? The best little horror house in Philadelphia? I, I did. So maybe you'll like her on my show, where she does an entire uh, commentary for the con cut of Southland Tales with uh, two assholes. <laughs> me and my friend Marcelo. Now, yeah, have a nice apocalypse. Find that wherever. And then um, you can follow me on Twitter at JunkBlader. JunkBlader. And those are my only plugs. I think. Uh, just have uh be good to each other, love each other. Uh, of course, all that stuff. Um, you know, uh, uh, in these hard times, we have to uh, reach across the aisle, as George said, uh, and, and, just, and just try to find a way to get along. You know.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, as far as my plugs to follow George, up on plugs. that, yeah,
1: please. Right. What do you
0: got? You can find me on Blue Sky at Little Horror Phl. Not that active on there, but who knows? Maybe you'll see something. I'm also on Instagram at Little Horror Phl. Not that active, but who knows? Maybe you'll see something. Because Twitter was really where I was at. I'm not on Twitter anymore, and so because there wasn't really a audience facing platform anymore, I have reluctantly created a subreddit for Best Little Horror House in Ooh. Philly. Ooh, so episodes – yeah, episodes will be going up on there. You can talk with people about the episodes, talk about how I'm full of shit, uh, just complain about the fucking monologue at the beginning about chuzettes mm-hmm. and fabulas and who gives a shit. Shit on me for being a bad guest, please. There That's you all. go. All of these things and more available to you on Reddit.com. R slash <laughs> uh, Little Horror PHL. I figured it was smart to keep the Little Horror PHL branding – Cross it all. So check it out there. Yeah, like uh, like Siobhan said, Vera Drew has been on the podcast. So if you're coming here from Have a Nice apocalypse and you're like, hey, I liked Vera Drew on this podcast, uh, she, she, Vera's been on this podcast as well. So check out that episode. You'll probably like her there too. Talking about Return to Oz, which was a really great one. Hayes Davenport talking about Under the Silver Lake. Really great uh, recent episode as well. Uh, all kinds of great stuff. And then if you're really enjoying the podcast – Sign up for the Patreon, which for just five dollars a month, you can get all kinds of bonus episodes, including uh, fun movie argument, legal thriller episodes, or spotlight episodes on things like Session Nine and um, and we did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Two as the gayest horror movie ever made, according to our guests, at least. With the um, the hosts of Two Old Queens, so a lot of really great stuff over there. Last plug as far as the um, listener drive is going. We're about halfway through. So the stream is up to uh, like 13 hours right now, I believe. We need seven and a half to go, seven and a half thousand more downloads to go to get to a hundred thousand downloads of the podcast. And then it will be a 24 hour live stream on December 22nd, full of guests, games, giveaways, all kinds of great stuff. So if you really want that to happen, you want to win some cool prizes and you want to watch some movies and stuff. Um, you know, tell a friend about the show. Just, that's just, it's just so simple. Literally, just say, "Hey, I like this movie. Here's a great episode about it."
1: Go go into a Best Buy and then just start downloading episodes onto all the fake all, all the <laughs> fake devices there, or all the like uh, test phones and stuff. Steal all your friends' phones and computers.
0: Yeah, I don't endorse go. it, but I also don't not endorse it.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we need to get seventy five hundred more downloads, people.
0: We 24- twenty four right.
1: hour live stream.
0: Come on, that's right. That's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.